It's been 22 years to the date that Christopher Wallace, better known to everyone in the world as the Notorious B.I.G., was assassinated in Los Angeles, California, back in 1997. Welcome back to the show. Let's get into it. Yeah. Motherfuckers better know. <laughs> Lock your windows, close your doors. generation of today's hip-hop listeners won't understand the relevance that the Notorious B.I.G. still has within the game to this date. It's different for someone like myself and the people who are in my age group. You see, I was born in the 80s, which means that my childhood years were the 1990s. And if you know anything about the 1990s, and especially growing up in Brooklyn, you know how chaotic that time period was and how unpredictable and how dangerous it was and how we were growing up at the height of the crack epidemic and also being in the last days of the crack epidemic because of the political structure that we had in New York City. You see, I remember David Dinkins, that's as far back as I can remember, and then after him, it was Rudy Giuliani, who was like a tyrannical villain um, for black men, especially coming up in the mid-90s to, I would say, maybe about 1999-ish, when he was on his way out. But Brooklyn and everything about it around that time revolved around the drug dealers, revolved around the hustlers. Everything was drug dealer culture. This was before gangs came into the picture Bloods and Crips and all types of nonsense like that, you know, infiltrated our land. Everything down to the beefs, down to, you know, flashy cars, jewelry, even style in terms of fashion. Everything was inspired by 
the neighborhood corner boy, the D-boy, so to speak. And I would say 1994 is when I really started paying attention to hip-hop music. And, you know, there were a lot of acts out there at the time. You know, we had our Wu-Tang clans. We had Tribe Called Quest. We had different groups like that. You know, music had a message back then. But for one reason or another, I felt like I gravitated more so towards one artist in particular, and that was Biggie Smalls. And it wasn't because of, you know, the music videos that I saw from him at the time. It had nothing to do with that. It was more so coming up in Brownsville, growing up in the projects out there, I was seeing a lot of things at a young age and Big's music along with Nas's music, they were basically given a narrative of someone like me who was watching things at a very young age and seeing things from a distance, the murders, the the, the hand-to-hand drug sales, you know, um, police brutality and all types of foul shit that was going on. So I remember around 94, my pops, man, God rest his soul, he used to always take me with him into the city and we used to go to J&R Music World at that time. Um, I'm not sure if that store is still existing to this day, but it was located on Park Row right across the street from City Hall. And that's where I would go to get all of my music um, way before they had Virgin Megastore or Tower Records. This was a long time ago, y'all. And I remember I saw the cover for Ready to Die, and this was one of my first tapes next to Illmatic that I remember him buying for me. And he had no idea what the hell this 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 album was. You know, he just bought it because I bugged him about it, so he decided to cop it for me. Along with purchasing the Ready to Die album for me, my dad bought himself what was considered at that time to be one of the most state-of-the-art cassette deck surround systems because he was a sound guy himself and he was into audio engineering and he was one of the first people along with my uncle that taught me about sound engineering and um, audio mechanics and stuff like that. So just to make a long story short, we got back to Brooklyn that same day and you know he was so happy about this new system he bought for himself. He said, yo, pop in that tape that I bought for you. And I can remember only getting into about maybe two and a half to three minutes of this album before he stopped it immediately and I was put on punishment because he had no idea what the content of this record was going to be like but you know after a few days I guess he must have you know used logic and he thought about it and he kind of explained to me about how it was all right to listen to the music at you know with me being such a, a young boy at that time as long as I wasn't trying to imitate, you know, emulate the type of stuff that was being rapped about, you know, the subject matter. You know, he was a very cool and and chill person like that, my dad, you know, again. So I skimmed through this album and I've never heard anything like this. You know, I'm very young at the time and all that I knew of rap was what I saw on, you know, video music box at the time. Or, you know, we had uh, DJ Bobby Simmons, you know, he's big in Brownsville. And he had a show out at the time called Flavor Videos. So I knew of only what I could um, get a hold of when I could. But, you know, there's always that one record in particular that stands out whenever you listen to an album for the first time. 
And it was at this moment when I heard this record, I said, yo, this is what I want to do. Until that time, I've never heard a record that sounded quite like Everyday Struggle and the entire Ready to Die album for that matter. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. And that's what kickstarted me wanting to get into hip hop. You know, I had my little crew of friends and we would, you know, write out raps and stuff like that and recite them. And, you know, I would ask my dad to try to figure out how to book studio time for myself and all of us. But, you know, we were too young to be really, really involved in the shit the way we wanted to be, you know, because we were just kids. So moving along to 1995, you know, I knew of and I was aware of Tupac Shakur and his music, but I wasn't a fan of Tupac because a lot of his subject and his material would fly over my head with me just being a little kid at that time. And I had no idea that the two of these guys were beefing. And until I started paying attention to what was going on in the media at that time, because you see, 95, this was before social media. This was before the age of everybody out here clout chasing and just doing a bunch of ridiculously stupid shit just to get you know famous. We had to actually read magazines. And one of the biggest magazines at that time was Vibe and The Source. So I picked up one of the magazines and I read and I had no idea that it was so much backstory behind him and um, Tupac. And they had uh, a, a beef that was being created by the media for the most part, because, you know, in later years, I found out that it wasn't as serious as, you know, the popular media made it out to be. But um, the unfortunate incident that took place at Quad Studios that resulted in Tupac getting shot and 
with me being as young as I was, I knew that there was something wrong and there wasn't something, there was something that wasn't right, I should say, excuse me, about the next record that I'm about to get into for you guys. And I felt like this was going to start some issues because I remember when Bad Boy and Death Row were at the Source Awards, I believe it was, in 95. And it was here in New York City, as a matter of fact, in the Garden. I believe it was at the theater in Madison Square Garden in 95 that year. And when Snoop went on stage and, you know, he was cursing out the crowd and everything. And then Suge took a diss and, you know, took a jab at Puff. I knew something wasn't right when I heard Bad Boy release this record. It was something about this record that it sent like, I don't know, it, it was like, it sent like a ominous and real dark tone for how things were going to be for the next year and a half. As we As proceed, we proceed yeah. oh. to give you what to you, you need, need. need. get live, Turn the mics up. Turn that mic up. Yeah, the beat is knocking. Leave that mic up, though. Turn that shit the fuck up. Uh, what? Turn it louder. Yeah. Uh. Shot ya, separate the weak from the opsa Leap hard to creep them Brooklyn streets It's on nigga, fuck all that bickering beef I can hear sweat trickling down your cheek Your heartbeat sound like Sasquatch's feet Thundering, shaking the concrete Then the shit stop when I fall the plot Neighbors call the cops and they heard mad shots Saw me in the drop, three and a quarter Slaughter, electrical tape around the daughter Old school, new school, need to learn though I burn, baby, burn like disco inferno Burn slow like blunts with yayo Peel more skins than Idaho potato Niggas know the lyrical molesting is taking place Fucking with B.I.G. it ain't safe I make your skin chase Rashes on the masses Bumps and bruises, blunts and land cruisers Big Papa smash fools, bash fools Niggas mad because I know the cash rules Everything around me, two Glock nines Any motherfucker whisperin' about mine And I'm Brooklyn's finest You rewind this, bad boys behind this Looking back at the timing of this record and its release I put myself in the shoes of Tupac Shakur and try to figure out what his mind state might have been like, you know, upon that record's release. Now, at the time this record actually came out, Pac was doing his bid up in, I believe it was Clinton Correctional Facility, upstate New York. Now, you have to think about it. I've just been shot in a robbery that was botched. Um in prison sitting in here for something that I was accused of that I feel that I'm innocent and now I have someone who was my friend or who I thought was a friend at one point putting out a record and I feel like he's subliminally taking jabs at me so you have to understand the mindset and what might have been the catalyst for Tupac 
harboring all of this animosity and having all of this anger pent up in him, you know, until he was released. But always felt that it was ill-advised of Bad Boy to release that record. And I recently found out that it wasn't even Big's call because, you know, a partner of mine told me that Big never wanted to release that actual record, but it was actually Puff's call. And Puff was the one who decided to drop that record. Now, some people can blame it on Ego or chuck it up to his feuding with Suge Knight at the time. But, you know, we may never know what the real situation is. The only people who do know are Suge Knight and Puff. And I don't think either one of them are going to, you know, break the silence on what was actually going on at that time. But, you know, sad time in hip hop, man, 95 and 96 was very dark because, you know, I'm, I'm, I grew up in the MTV era. You know, again, you know, 90s kid. And I watched a lot of MTV news when they were covering a lot of the so-called East Coast and West Coast feuding. And you had a lot of artists that wouldn't collaborate. You had a lot of artists that were scared to travel back and forth between Cali and New York. And it was just a huge shit show for the most part. And, you know, time passes, Pac gets released. He comes out with California Love, man, and that was a record that made me pay attention to him. And, you know, more time passes, he releases All Eyes on Me. That album was a smash, and he gets assassinated in September of 96. You know, the 7th, I believe it was, to be exact, and he passed six days later. So me being young at the time and having you know, better common sense than most kids my age, I knew that this wasn't going to go over well. And I began to fear for Biggie. And I started to question in my head. I used to say, well, damn, what if Biggie is next? And then comes that California trip in March in 1997. Very ill-advised move again. But, you know, from a partner of mine, same partner that I spoke of uh, a few minutes ago, you know, Big wasn't really focused on being in Los Angeles at the time of the, uh, I believe it was the Soul Train Music Awards, which they had got invited to, and then that whole after party. But um, before I jump ahead, you know, I was informed that Big wasn't even interested in being there because he was actually supposed to be in England. And that's where his priorities and his focus was because he wanted to start a campaign and he had a huge rollout for the Life After Death album, which was um, already about to drop. But um, ill-advised move, man, again, listening to Puff. But I'm not going to make this like a, a witch hunt for, for Puff or anything like that. But, you know, that fateful night, man, like I said, 22 years ago to this date, which is eerie because it was on a Saturday that Big was taken away from us. And I remember that day like it was yesterday. You know, I got up early in the morning. My dad had just left for work and I was eating my breakfast and I'm sitting in front of the TV glued to MTV and I'm watching MTV jams and then they just interrupted and out of nowhere I believe it was Kurt Loder at the time who was one of the anchormen for MTV and uh you know he just brought the bad news to everybody man they said that big was gone you know and that shit hurt because not like when Pac passed you know it was it was sad but I really felt more hurt when Big passed because it was somebody that was from here. He was from New York. You know, he was from Brooklyn. He represented 
what we came from. You know, he represented guys like, you know, some of the older cats that I looked up to in the neighborhood, you know, the hustlers and stuff like that. He represented the the the, the, the circle of life that we knew at that time. And, um, you know, that shit hurt, man. That was a huge blow for not only hip-hop, but it was a huge blow for us, man, back in Brooklyn. And, um, you know, I didn't go to Fulton Street when, you know, they had the open view and they drove his body through the city. You know, I was too young and my, and my dad wanted to keep me away from stuff like that because he was paying more attention to hip-hop and he didn't like the state of it at the time. And, you know, he said that it was becoming too negative um, ultra violent and stuff like that and he wanted to kind of shelter me from a lot of the evils that were you know taking place which I can understand you know a man wanting to protect his child from the dangers of the world but um you know it was a very sad time man but um out of all of that when the smoke cleared we got a classic album in Life After Death and this was the biggie that ushered in the era of the braggadocious, flashy New York style hip-hop that we have from artists like Fabulous, Jay-Z, and so many other people now. And this was the B.I.G. that, you know, if he were still here, uh, it, there's a debate as to how big of a career Jay-Z would have. But I think that if Big was still here, he would still be making... You know, some of the music that you're hearing from artists out like French Montana and stuff like that to have like that kind of swaggy, braggadocious flow because he was one of the first to do it next to Hove. And um, I got Life After Death. And again, listening to the album, track list and stuff like that. And there's always one particular record that stands out and that will do it for you. And it was this. Trying to win, try not to sin. How off weed and lots of gin. So 
much smoke need oxygen Suddenly counting them Benjamins Nigga, you should too If you knew what this game would do to you Been in this shit since 92 Look at all the bullshit I've been through So-called beef with you know who Fucked a few female stars or two Then I'm blue like niggas blue like Mike Shit, not to be fucked with Motherfucker better duck quick Cause me and my dogs love the buck shit Fuck the luck shit, strip the aim No aspirations to quit the game Spit your game, fuck your shit Grab your gap, pull your clip Squeeze your clip, hit the right one Pass that weed, I got the light one All them niggas, I got the fight one All them hoes, I got the light one Our situation is a tight one What you wanna do? Fight or run? Seems to me that you'll take the Bone and big nigga die slowly I'ma tell you like a nigga told me Cash on everything around me Shit, lyrically, niggas can't see me Fuck it Buy the coke, cook the coke, cut it Know the bitch before you call yourself loving it Nigga with a bench fucking it Doesn't it seem all to you? Big come through with mobs and crews Good fellas down to the most of do Who's the killer? Me or you? We forgive you That record was so far ahead of its time And stood out for me in particular Because it had my favorite rap group Bone Thugs and Harmony And big shout out to Lazy Bone Good dude and it leaves me to question what would have been the state of hip-hop currently if Big was still here. I know that he would have been doing great things and outselling everybody out here because if he had genius-level talent, and this was 1997, I can only imagine the type of music and the projects that he would have been putting out to this date. So rest up, Playboy. You are gone but not forgotten. We still miss you. We still blast your music. Every March 9th, we're going to represent for you. And in your words, we always going to spread love because it's the Brooklyn way. I want to thank you to all the listeners for supporting, taking time out. You know, I had to share this episode because I wouldn't feel right, you know, on such a significant day in hip hop and not dedicating one episode to one of the greatest lyricists to ever do it. All right. So as always, it's your boy First Letter. And I'm signing off. I will catch you guys at the next episode. Love, peace, blessings to everybody. Be kind, be courteous, be thoughtful. And I'm out. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. How's everybody doing tonight? I'd like to welcome to the stage the lyrically acclaimed. I like this young man because when he came out, he came out with the phrase... He went from ashy to classy. <laughs> I like that. So everybody in the house, give a warm round of applause for the notorious B.I.T. The notorious B.I.T., ladies and gentlemen. Give it up for him, y'all. Uh. A nigga never been as broke as me. I like that. When I was young, I had two pair of leads. Besides that, the pinstripes and the gray. Uh-huh. The one I wore on Mondays and Wednesdays. Uh-huh. While niggas flirt, I'm, I'm sewing tigers on my shirt and alligators. Uh-huh. You wanna see the inside? Huh. I see you later. Here come the drama. Oh, that's that nigga with the fake. Uh-huh. Wow! Why you punch me in my face? Stay in your place. Play your position. Uh-huh. Here come my intuition. Uh-huh. Go in this nigga pocket. Rob him while his friends watch it. That hoes clock it. Uh-huh. Here comes respect. His crew's your crew, or they might be next Look at they man eye, big man, they never try So we roll with them, uh, stole with them I mean loyalty, niggas bought me milks at lunch The milks with chocolate, the cookies, butter crunch 88, Oscars and blue and white duck, ask the slice Why is the feeling that you know that you keep on Just keep on pressing on Sky is the I was ashamed, my crew was 
lame I had enough heart for most of them Long as I got stuff for most of them saw Even when I was wrong, I got my point across They depicted me the boss Of course, my orange box cut to make the world go round Plus I'm fucking, bitches ain't my homegirls now Start stacking, dabbled in crack, gun packing Nicknamed Medina, made the scene, I took my Nina From gym class to in glass, passed off for global The only nigga with a mobile can't you see like total? Getting larger and wasting taste. Ain't no telling where this melon is heading. Just in case, keep a shell at the tip of your melon. Clear the space. Your brain was a terrible thing to waste. 88 on gates. Snatch initial nameplates. Smoke your splits with niggas. Real life begin to kill us. Praying God forgive us for being sinners. Help us out. Sky is the limit, and you know that you keep on just keep on.